South Dakota University takes the national stage and the university president enters the Hall of Fame. From SDPB Radio, today is Tuesday, August 29th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we get to know Jose Marie Griffiths. We'll talk about her childhood in England, how stories of Marie Curie sparked an interest in the unknown and the discoverable, and Dr. Griffiths' vision for the future. In South Dakota, half of all suicides involve a gun. There are simple steps you can take to keep your family safe. We will remind you what they are. Plus, a stone marker with a mystery. CJ Keene heads to Lemon. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Bruce Roseland is South Dakota's new poet laureate, and it won't be long before you get to meet the state's new top poet. I caught up with Bruce yesterday, and I asked him what he had coming up and what he wanted to achieve in his term as laureate. Here's Bruce Roseland. Is one thing coming up across the state is poetry on the road put on by South Dakota State Poetry Society. I already agreed to be in it as much as possible uh, back last spring. And so I, uh, so I think that's one of the vehicles we're going to do. Because one of the things I said, uh, being a poet laureate, was that try to get out there and talk and mingle with people. And that uh, this particular project by the society is exactly that, is uh, to get society members uh, to read some of their poems, but more importantly, to get the public involved, have them come and read. And that's what I would like to do. I could say one more word here, probably, is that I was asked a question uh, at my interview. You know, at, at the end of four years, what do I consider having been a successful poet laureate. I said, well, at the end of the four years, if there's more people writing poetry and more people just plain writing, I would consider that I have been successful. So that's what my aim is to do. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In South Dakota, 50%, that's half, of all suicides involve a gun. Having access to a firearm ups your risk of dying by suicide. If you have a gun in your home, there are simple things you can do to keep yourself and your family safe. I spoke with Colleen Creighton last Friday to learn more. Colleen is director of the End Family Fire Program at the national nonprofit organization, the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Let's start a little bit about the End Family Fire Program with helping people understand what, how do we define family fire? Family fire is an incident of gun uh, injury that happens in the home. So it could be a child gets a hold of a gun that's not safely stored. Someone in crisis gets a hold of a gun uh, and tries to take their own life. So it's really incidents of gun violence stemming from an improperly stored gun in the home. Tell me a little bit about the statistics and the data that we know that helps us understand how big of a problem this is. Unfortunately, uh, the new CDC data that came out, uh, it's the provisional data that they just released, showing we're at the highest levels ever of suicide across America. So right now, currently, we lose 67 people to gun suicide each and every day in the U.S. It can be hard to talk about this because 
once you open up a conversation, politics so easily enters the door. But we have to talk about gun safety and where guns are stored in our home. How do we begin? Absolutely. So if you look at the, the number of suicide in general across the country, you lose about 49,000 people each and every day. Now, if you look at the percentage of that, that is by gun and suicide, it's more than half. And so, you know, just having these simple conversations about safely storing a weapon, safely storing a gun, or, you know, putting time and space between an individual in crisis and their firearm, we could save so many lives across the country each and every day. And so our End Family Fire campaign does not get political. It doesn't get partisan. It doesn't even touch that space. It's, it brings gun owners to the table. It brings individuals in their community, anyone impacted by this issue, all at the same table, saying there's a simple act we can do, and the call to action would be safely storing your gun within your home. Let's be specific. How, what does safely storing a gun within your home actually mean? Well, thankfully today, there's a lot of different variations and a lot of different options for individuals. So you have everything from trigger locks to barrel locks to lock boxes, safe, massive storage unit. So anything that just it doesn't allow easy access uh, to the firearm. So I... and even today, we're seeing a lot of options with technology. So biometrics, uh, there's a lot of apps coming out now where they, you can bolster your gun and provide uh, kind of distance and space to access when needed as well. Interesting. So I go to the VA, and uh, every time I'm there, I will pass one or two locations where I can pick up a free cable lock for a gun. And so that brings me to the question of whose responsibility is it in a community to raise awareness about locking up weapons and to provide access to some of the technologies that, that safely store firearms? I think the answer to that is everybody. Um, so I think, like you're saying, anyone that sells a gun, whether it's a gun shop or point of sale, there should be storage options discussed and mentioned at that time. Uh, and then, you know, police stations, a lot of community organizations, a lot of nonprofits give gun locks and cable locks and uh, lock boxes out. I think they can. But I think important, you have the, the individuals giving the gun locks and storage devices out. We also need to raise conversation and dialogue at that same level. And so, you know, first day of summer every year is called Ask Day. And what that is, it's asking if there's a gun in the home. And it just means if your child's on a play date, if, you know, you're visiting relatives, if you're traveling, just know, is there a gun in the house? And, and if there is, is it safely stored? So I think to answer your question, many individuals are giving it out. So it's everybody's responsibility that either has funding or can provide boxes and safes, but it's also every other person's responsibility to talk and know in their home and in their community where the guns are and if they're safely stored. One of the things I think about South Dakota because of the number of people that have guns is that that actually, maybe I'm naive, but it makes the conversation a little bit easier to say, hey, we hunt. Uh, Do you hunt? Do you Mm -hmm. have guns in this house? Let's talk about that. We were a law enforcement family, and we always said that, hey, you know, this is a law enforcement ha- family. There are weapons in the house, but here's where they're locked. We would offer that information, and I think every single mm-hmm. parent that I offered that information would say to me, oh, I never thought of that before. <laughs> and so then mm-hmm. you'd ask in their household, and it was, a different, it was a different story. So in some ways it should be easier because guns are so much a part of our lives here. 
I don't exactly. know. Exactly. And, and gun owners, for the, for the most part, especially, you know, they know how to, to teach gun safety. Uh, and part of that is, you know, because you don't know if there's a toddler, you don't know if someone's just exploring, friends always come over. And in your home, you may you may talk to your children, you may talk to your family. They have one set of understanding about the safety and responsibility for a gun owner. What if there's play dates? What if friends come over and they haven't had that training? And that's why we're saying we need to just increase the conversation so that whether you have a gun or not, uh, you have that information. And we pulled up some data, and actually, just to kind of level set how many guns are in uh, South Dakota, in 2020, an estimated 105,000 firearms were sold in South Dakota, and it was a almost a 40% increase over 2019. <clears throat> and then the numbers, it's been about 93,000 in 2021 and about 75,000 in 2022. So exactly what you're saying, there's a lot of guns in South Dakota, and so we want to make sure that whether it's, again, unintentional, someone finding a gun, or suicide, that you're, you're preventing nefarious use of the weapon. Talk to the people who say, but Colleen, I have this gun because I need to access it quickly. I need it loaded. I need it by my bedside. I, what, what good is it going to do me if the ammunition is out of it and it's locked up? What's the point of having the gun then? For those listening, there's a lot of options, especially with biometric safe, that you can access your gun very, very quickly in a heartbeat in an instant. Um, so that's not a concern. The other element of this, too, is unfortunately more individuals are harmed or killed in their home by their own weapon than they are from an intruder. So the perception is, for my own safety, someone's going to enter my home, I can protect me and my family. In reality, I believe the last statistic I saw was you're more than 20% more likely to be injured by your own firearm. <sighs> Let's talk about um, death by suicide using firearms. Mm -hmm. Fairly prevalent, um, very deadly. Tell me a little bit about some of the statistics mm -hmm. or the, or the, what, what difference does it make to Actually, just put a, yeah, a little distance between you and that, that decision? The national statistics, we lose nearly 50,000 people each and every day to, to this issue, to suicide. And when you break that down by firearm suicide, we're seeing 67 people a day are taking their own life. In South Dakota specifically, we lose 92 people by firearm suicide each year. And what's frightening is South Dakota has the 18th highest firearm suicide rate in the country. Now, if you measure that, South Dakota is 46.6% higher than our national firearm death rate by suicide. The question comes up, this is, this is a very important issue, specifically for South Dakota. Um, and a lot of this is, like you said earlier, there are a lot more guns in South Dakota comparatively to just across the country. And it was nearly a 50% higher rate of firearm suicide. You clearly need more people talking about the issue and more people practicing safe storage. Help me understand the conversation that you would have with somebody who you were concerned about and you knew they had access to firearms um, or a teenager in your house and you knew the parents wanted the firearms for hunting, but they also want to keep the, ch the children mm -hmm. safe. How do you have that conversation when that can be very confrontational to say, we're worried that you have access to this? It feels like an awful lot is being taken away from you if you don't have access mm -hmm. to your guns. Yeah, it's an awkward conversation, definitely. Sometimes it's, it's a hard conversation to have. But if you look at what could happen if you don't have that conversation, an awkward conversation is 
far better than ending up burying your friend or losing your friend to suicide. And so a lot of times there's a misperception out there that if you ask someone about suicide, you're putting an idea in their head. That's the furthest from the truth. A lot of times what you need to do is, is start that dialogue, open up kind of that two-way dialogue, check in and say, are you okay? Have you had thoughts of harming yourself? Have you had thoughts of suicide? And allow that individual time and space to, to talk with you. The other conversation along with that, if you realize they are in crisis, the next question would be, do you have access to a firearm? And if they do, you have the conversation again, this isn't punitive, it's not against you, this is actually for you. By taking your gun off from your possession, or sometimes there's really creative ways. A lot of times if you don't want to give it up, there's, uh, you put it in a safe and you freeze the key to the safe so that at least by the time it takes to melt that ice cube, you're able to, to have some time and distance and space between you. The other element here too is if someone has suicidal ideation, attempts to take their own life and survive, they're 90% less likely to ever try again to take their own life. So having that conversation interrupting that suicidal ideation from becoming actual action is imperative. And then at the same um, result, the lethality of firearms when it comes to suicide, nearly 90% of individuals that attempt to take their own life complete suicide, you know, instead of other means. So the question there is, this is why we need to have the conversation because it's the most deadly way for, for suicide. And like we said earlier, more and more individuals every year are taking their own life with a gun. And so having the conversation about, you know, are you in crisis? Are you thinking of a suicide? If so, do you have access to your lethal means for a gun right now? And if they do, have that conversation. This isn't against you. I'm trying to help you. Where You're not losing this permanently. We're just putting it in a safe space so that you yourself can get into a safe space. How often do we need to talk about whether or not there are firearms in the house and how they're stored? I think it, it, this is really, uh, you know your own family best, so it's really um, reliant on your family's needs. So a lot of times, exactly like you said, if you look at the rates, a lot of times it's an older individual that's taking their own life. So if you know someone has just retired, uh, is looking for a purpose in life, uh, there may be dementia elements, obviously have the conversation or keep an eye on things with toddlers and younger kids and playdates, have that conversation as well. Uh, and then whenever there's a new gun, you know, that's purchased or brought into the home, you should have that conversation as well. So there's no statistic or static every 12 months or every year. This is more about what dynamics are changing within your, your family itself. Where do you go if you have guns or inherited guns or have changed your mind about wanting to have them in your house to make sure you're getting rid of them safely and they don't end up in the hands of someone who will use them to, to hurt? Sure. Each community has different sets and regulations and rules on how to transfer firearms, you know, whether it's across state or um, county lines. So the best thing would really be to reach out to local law enforcement and find out what the rules are. Uh, there's a lot of states now and a lot of communities have built-in safe storage maps and what that means is you look it up, it's a graphic, you look at your address, and this tells you, here's all the places that you can take your gun just for safekeeping for when you need it. And, you know, some of those are you know, gun shops, some of those are police stations, 
Some of those are community centers where they have hunting rifles and things like that. So it's really individualized to each community. So check with law enforcement and they can lead you in the right direction. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicide ideation, call or text 988 right now. That is a 24-7 hotline. It is staffed by trained mental health professionals. You're not alone. Help is available. Give that number a call. That is 988. Call or text anytime. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths has served in presidential appointments at the National Science Board, the U.S. President's Information Technology Advisory Committee, and the U.S. National Commission on Libraries and Information Science. She is currently president at Dakota State University, and she is leading that university to the national forefront of cyber education, research, and development. Her contributions to higher ed have also led her to the South Dakota Hall of Fame. Dr. Griffiths joined me for a conversation on the phone yesterday. Dr. Griffiths, welcome back to the program and congratulations on this honor. Thank you very much, Laurie. Appreciate it. I'm curious to know um, when you first came to South Dakota and if the idea of a South Dakota Hall of Fame was on your mind at that time. Help walk me through your journey to our state. Not in the least. I was really more concerned about finding out what this place was like and whether I would uh, actually uh, enjoy being here. Tell people a little bit about how you got here and why you came. Well, um, I have been at a number of universities around the United States and uh, sort of fairly late in my career, I uh, my daughter started looking at institutions and um, I felt that she would do really well in a smaller institution rather than in a very large institution. And as we traveled around looking at different universities, um, I realized that in some ways the quality of academic life is better in smaller universities because the faculty and the students tend to be much closer together. And so when I was looking for uh, other, another position, I felt I had one more position left in me before I retired. Um, my husband suggested taking a look at Dakota State. Um, I really wasn't sure. Uh, Dakota meant cold. Um, I have to be, and I don't like the cold very much. But he said, no, no, take a look at this. I'm serious. And so I did. And looking at the focused mission that DSU had to focus on computing and information technologies and cybersecurity and data analytics, it just was something that I felt matched my expertise and experience. And coming here for interview, I felt that this was that there was a lot here at DSU, but it wasn't well known. I had never come across it, and I'd done a fairly in-depth study of institutions that had data analytics because I set up a program like that in Rhode Island. So um, my husband persuaded me to apply. I did, um, and we came out here for the interview, and he asked me if I was offered the job if I'd take it, and I said, yep, I think I will. We'll see if they offer me the job. And uh, so I came and, and fell in love with the place. I think a lot of people didn't have an awareness of what Dakota State was doing and yep. was capable of in the future until you came here. What was um, 
before I ask you sort of, you know, where you began with trying to, to elevate the programs and student success there, for example, I, I'm very curious, we never get to talk about this, but are there similarities to Madison, South Dakota, to the place in England where you're from? Are there commonalities that you find remind you of home? Where is home for you? Well, home, that home is um, outside uh, uh, outside London in uh, the former um, market market basket area that would serve the people of London, so lots of fruit orchards, etc. But um, during World War II, it had become rather suburbanized as people moved in on the outskirts of London. But it was a wonderful place to grow up, and it really is very, very different, I have to say, from Madison, South Dakota. I mean, we were half an hour on the express train from the center of London. So oh. when I was a high school student, we would go in for um, uh, concerts at the Royal Festival Hall, or we would go into the Royal Society for their physics lecture series. Oh. I mean, we could do that from wow. high school. I could go to Wimbledon and and go in for the, uh, the inexpensive uh, seats for Wimbledon because it was just a short train ride away. Madison, South Dakota, very, very different. Um, everywhere you grow up in England, you're, near, you're not too far from um, salt water, I like to say. We lived on the River Thames, but we're always near salt water. So the biggest concern for me coming here was that these great plains, which had their own beauty, very, very different from the kind of rolling hills of the south of England. Um, I felt that um, once I found that there were lakes here, and not just little lakes, but quite substantial lakes, I felt that I could feel at home, and so every weekend my husband and I would go out to the lake. We'd uh, eat at one of the restaurants on the lake, and I thought, okay, this gives me the connection back to my homeland in a way. Mm. Um, so it is different. The, the predominant color in uh, rural England is a, a deep, deep green that you don't see in many other places. Um, they talk about the green grass of home. Um, here, the predominant color is the uh, ripening corn, um, that sort of brownish gold color that, that, that sits, sits in the field. Um, but it, it's just a totally different beauty. It's a, a wonderful place, and I really do enjoy it. And one of the things that that brought to the table with you was your international connections, your national connections, and this vision that you had right away that Dakota State didn't need to be isolated by those growing stocks of corn, that there was networking to be had and there were big partnerships that were just waiting to happen. Tell me where you began with the vision yeah. for Dakota State to say, I see mm -hmm. potential here. Um, partially because okay. of my experience and partially because of just what is waiting to the story that's waiting to be told. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things in there. I mean, first of all, um, somebody told me I didn't speak much when I came, and that's because I observed that, uh, you know, the scientist in me observes first and uh, uh, makes some conclusions on what you see. But um, I found that um, the whole area of com well, computing, computer science, um, and cybersecurity in particular was an area where the university had received some recognition. It had the three Center of Academic Excellence designations from um, the National Security Agency and the Department of Homeland Security. And those, to me, became an anchor because those were things that not many other institutions in the United States had. Um, we didn't have just one degree in cybersecurity, which a lot of institutions do. We have now, and now we have six or seven, we have multiple 
degree programs in computer science that then has evolved into artificial intelligence and into uh, analytics and data science. And I think recognizing that was important. The second thing was that people didn't know CSU existed, and we discovered by conducting some market research that not many people even in the state knew what DSU did. I mean, some people said, well, it's something to do with computers. It's that computer school. But we're more than computers. We're much, much more. And I felt that that was important to get the message out. So simultaneously, I started developing deeper relationships with the National Security Agency, with parts of the National Security Agency we hadn't worked with before, with the Department of Defense, with other other, um, federal agencies. And at the same time, we started to... uh, try and figure out um, a vision that we could actually market and um, create our own brand and identity um, independent of what we had looked like before. So that was going on simultaneously, I would say, in 2016, 2017, maybe even 2018. But I had drawn a picture um, after I'd done my analysis of where I thought we should move. So artificial intelligence was one area. Cyber health was on the list. Cyber agriculture was on the list. Cyber manufacturing was on the list. Um, These are the things, these are the areas where we need to move into. And if we are to stay in the lead pack of schools in the cybersecurity arena, we are going to have to conduct more coordinated um, applied research. So rather than simply exist on the individual research agendas of our individual faculty, I wanted to create some sort of multidisciplinary efforts that brought people together to solve the problems that uh, people across the state and people across the country brought to us. And that was the inception of the Mad Labs. Yeah. we, we launched a series of uh, you know, curriculum development exercises and faculty hires. We launched the beginning of how do we have this overlay of collaborative research that doesn't eliminate our individual faculty research but sort of sits above it, creating the Mad Labs. And I think the best thing I ever did was call it the Mad Labs. They're really the Madison Cyber Labs, but I joked that we should call it the Mad Labs, and it just stuck, and everybody loved it because it's got this, you know, this idea of mad scientists doing mad things in Mad Labs. <laughs> yeah. And then at the same time, we were working on uh, creating a brand identity for Dakota State, and all three of those things really began to hit in about 2018, 2019. From there, we've never looked back. That has to be very time. satisfying to see some of those things come to fruition, by the way. <laughs> It's great, but the best thing was, you know, everybody jumped in. It wasn't as if people were sitting waiting for me to do anything and I was waiting for them to do something. We just came together. Um, we talked about it. We we said, this is something we can do. And, he, you, know, I'm, I, you know, I know presidents have to raise money, do fundraising a lot. So I was a, we were able to do that, bring some uh, resources to the table, which meant that then we could move forward. So I, truly it was a collective effort. So one of the things that comes to mind every time I talk to you because of our conversations over the years and because you are a a leader in this field nationally and perhaps even internationally, um, we're looking at 10 years now earlier this summer that uh, is the anniversary of Edward Snowden sort of famously leaking a trove of uh, Mm -hmm. confidential and classified, highly classified information that exposed NSA activities in uh, collecting intel on on American citizens without probable 
cause. And you have done so much work on ethics and cybersecurity and your partnership with the NSA. What does that 10-year anniversary mean for you? You know, Snowden did a lot of damage, and it's taken a while to um, to really recover from it. But I think also it was a wake-up call to the uh, security agencies and also intelligence agencies that this world is, is not staying uh, static around us. You know, um, it's moving in a sense almost at the same pace that we've been moving. And so the biggest issue is really how do we uh, leverage the strong, positive relationships that this country has with others. So we could talk about the Western Alliance, but beyond the Western Alliance. Mm -hmm. And how do we ensure that the uh, values that drive our societies are built into the technologies that are now emerging, rather than the technologies driving us? I think we have to be careful. The, The capabilities of the emerging technologies in artificial intelligence and quantum computing are going to be mind-blowing, mind-boggling. Things we won't even be able to think yet of the kinds of applications that occur. But at the same time, we know that all technologies from the beginning of time have uh, not only been used, but often abused by a few. And so we have to protect against those. And in order to do that, I do think we have to have a much more um, we call it cyber savvy. I don't really mean deeply cyber savvy, but sort of maybe even surface cyber savvy that our population has to become. It's not going to be enough now to sit back and say, I'll just, you know, I'll just roam the Internet. I'll just take in my news feeds from there. We've got to understand what we're actually receiving and from whom and where it came from. And I think inter- as, as a country, we stand at an inflection point. Um, we can... We can continue to let things happen the way they have, but I think we need to have a more directed, positive, um, responsible production, development, deployment, and use of information technologies than we've ever had. We can do great things, but also people can do harm. And if we remain ignorant as to people doing harm and think, you know, everybody's going to be positive because we're positive about technology, it's not going to work. Um, So I think we're truly at that inflection point right now. How do you help? Imagine you have a young group of students, incoming freshmen or seniors ready to go into the working world or onto a graduate program or such, and they're asking you questions about security versus privacy, how you balance that, how we think about some of these things in the future, holding our government accountable and yet keeping our lives secure. What would you say yeah. to some of those students to sort of, you know, are the, the tenants that they need to take forward? Well, I, what I hope those students do is, is sort of keep, keep their minds open and um, sort of focus on how to do the right thing the right way. But, I mean, it's, it's wonderful working at a university because this is the hope, hope for our future. These young people, bright minds, very, very talented um, young people from, from this part of the world and beyond. Um, we need to have them understand it's it's not just about what they learn here. It's about developing a framework for making decisions and finding a pathway in life that allows you to do good things, to be satisfied with what you do, to have a good quality of life with your family and community. I wonder sometimes that I know people think, you know, we're, we're very techie oriented and we are. We have 
different depths of technological depth and understanding across our different degree programs. But I think all our students should have a better understanding of the context within which these technologies evolve, uh, what they're intended for, how they could be abused, and how we create, I think everybody in Washington these days is talking about guardrails, how do we create the guidelines, the guardrails that would allow us to continue to, to, to put technology to good use for the benefit of society rather than the detriment. And to do that, our students have to have more than the technical knowledge and skills. They need to understand uh, the history and evolution of technologies, various technologies. Um, They need to understand the roles of technology in society and how society adjusts and how technology adjusts to society. They need to think about uh, what is, you know, ethical practice, um, accountability, responsibility, and transparency in process and transparency in governance. So I think we're going to see more efforts on, on those that side of things than before. But there is a tendency for technical people to focus on the technology and, and believe it's all good because they're doing good things with it. But if they don't have this deeper understanding of how we got to the point that we're at today and how different countries have implemented, if they have different kinds of political regimes, how they've used uh, technologies um, in a variety of ways that we would consider extremely negative for our population, um, the world is not going to be just like the United States. The world, there are other countries that want to do other things. They want to control populations, etc. So understanding that context that we want and the values that um, that sort of prevail uh, across this country um, is something that people are going to have to understand in order to do the responsible thing at the right time. What's next for you? Uh, what is something that is on your list that you have not quite gotten to do yet that you're looking forward to doing? Oh, people who listen to this um, from VSU are just going to laugh. Um, <laughs> quantum computing. Um, this takes me back to my core discipline of physics. You know, quantum computing is all about high-energy physics. I find it very, very exciting. I understand the physics of it, which makes me get very excited, but the potential of quantum computing is going to power applications in AI and cybersecurity and cyber health and cyber everything uh, in unprecedented ways. And so we, we talked um, we talked in Washington recently about what could artificial intelligence do if the resources were put there. And I don't just mean money and people, but also um, compute power. And we talked about with all the information that's readily available and um, the availability of genomic and proteomic and metabolomic uh, databases, we ought to be able to cure cancer by putting enough of these resources together. I say, yes, we probably can cure cancer, but I think we're going to be able to prevent cancer. And that's the switch. It's not just a question of being very reactive to the problems of today that we need to resolve, but let's predict them before they happen. Let's predict the uh, the tornadoes and the hurricanes and with exact patterns and timings, let's predict uh, natural disasters and make sure that we have um, plans to get people away in enough time that they can actually get away because we'll, we'll actually have enough compute power to forward predict these things. So to me, that's the exciting part. I don't know that I'll be around when that actually starts to happen en masse, but hopefully as um, 
we uh, make a move, I hope, in South Dakota to um, to uh, get involved with quantum computing that uh, will begin eventually to see those kinds of applications that truly we never could have understood. You know, it's very interesting. Um, I considered myself the other day on a long drive. It gave me a chance to think. And I'm sitting there thinking about the different levels of computation. And then I realized I sort of am the living history of computers. Not quite, because I'm not as old as those very, very early ones, but not too far off. And I've seen the whole cycle of what we could do. And then suddenly we couldn't do any more because the technology wouldn't allow us. And then suddenly there was a spurt forward and then a few steps backwards. And now we're spurting forwards with AI. And then there'll be a few steps backwards to make sure we do it the right way. And then there'll be a major spurt forward with quantum. And to me, that's very exciting. And the thought to have lived from the beginning of this all the way through to where I can already see we're going, it gives me great satisfaction, I have to say. I've had a wonderful life and career so far, and um, it's only going to get better for people, I think. Okay, final question, because I don't fully understand. I, I, I'm so excited <laughs> by what you're saying quantum computing can do, but of course I don't fully understand what it is. Take me back to when you were a child or a teenager or a young adult when you didn't know what quantum computing was, unless you understood this when you were four, which then take me back to when you were two, please. But what are the things that early on you got that you understood about the universe or that you understood about com computing that now that you understand more, you can say that was a seed at that time? Uh, yeah, very good. There are a couple of things. Um, first thing is my father was a math teacher. And I used to sit next to him when he uh, graded his, uh, his, graded the students' uh, uh, homework. And my father was his his love in in math was uh, geometry. Um, uh, my love became algebra and calculus. So I'm a theoretical physicist, right in my head. So it's in my head, and they're not not really the practical experimentalist, although I did enjoy doing some experimentation. Uh, so I think that was the basis, and my father told me I left him behind when I started doing calculus. Hmm. But the other thing is I was quite young. My mother um, grew up in the Netherlands, um, uh, pre and uh, immediately post-World post War II, and my mother fell in love with the British public library system. You could actually go into the public library and browse the shelves yourself, which you couldn't do in the Netherlands at the time. So we went. Our two trips we took as children with my mother to the park and to the library. And uh, I was fairly young, I think around 10 years old, when I, I read the um, biography of Marie Curie. And I was fascinated by this woman and fascinated by the thought that you could discover something that nobody else knew until that time. And that planted the, the seeds um, of science and scientific research and scientific discovery in my head. And I've, to this day, Marie Curie is still um, my guiding light, if you like. And not only uh, the science that she did, but the way she lived, um, the way she uh, brought communities of scientists together, the fact she was unrecognized most of her life and unfortunately unrecognized by her own country. And I don't have that problem, but she pioneered for so many women in science that um, when I came here and I had my sort of non-inaugural uh, event at the university, the faculty brought me a Marie Curie bobblehead, which sits <laughs> on my shelf to this day. 
That's Jose Marie Griffiths, president of Dakota State University. The honors ceremony for the South Dakota Hall of Fame 2023 class is September 8th and 9th in Chamberlain, Oakoma. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota presidential history. During this week in 1964, President Lyndon Johnson selects Hubert Humphrey to be his vice presidential running mate. Humphrey was born and raised in Wallace, South Dakota. His mother was a Norwegian immigrant and his father... Hubert Horatio Humphrey Sr. was a licensed pharmacist and merchant. His father also served as mayor and a town council member. Humphrey Jr. spent most of his youth in nearby Dolan, South Dakota. The future vice president earned a pharmacy degree and helped run the family business for a time. But being a pharmacist was not what he wanted to do. In 1937, he moved to Minnesota to pursue a degree in political science. When America joined the fight in World War II, Humphrey tried to enlist in the military. He was rejected on account of colorblindness and other physical issues. He ended up completing his studies and began teaching at the college level. In 1945, Hubert Humphrey was elected mayor of Minneapolis, which launched his political career. He then served three terms representing Minnesota in the U.S. Senate. During his Senate career, he had a hand in crafting some of the most important legislation of his time, from the 1964 Civil Rights Act to Medicare. He also made several unsuccessful runs at the presidency before eventually claiming the vice presidential office. In 1992, South Dakota recognized Humphrey's achievements and his status as a native son. A stretch of State Highway 37 between Groton in the north and Highway 34 to the south was dedicated in his honor. It passes through Doland and Huron, a route that Humphrey would have been more than a little acquainted with. But it was on this week in 1964 that Lyndon Johnson nominated South Dakota native Hubert Humphrey to be vice president. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. Up next, C.J. Keene has the story about a rural stone marker in jeopardy. What's inside? You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Rural Life and History Reporting on SDPB is supported by Primrose Retirement Communities. PrimroseRetirement.com. This is Living. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In a quiet corner of northwestern South Dakota, a monument honoring an early fur trapper stands overlooking a wilderness lake but not for much longer. What's putting this rural stone marker in jeopardy? Well, it's because of what might be inside it. SDPB's C.J. Keene took an expedition to find out more. In the lonely buttes and bluffs of western South Dakota near Lemon, about 140 miles north of Rapid City, it's easy to imagine the 19th century drama of Hugh Glass. The trapper was mauled by a bear and abandoned by his party in 1823. Alone and crawling through the Dakota Territory, he tracked his distance from Thunder Butte as he crawled back to civilization. 
That track is said to have started in what is today rural Perkins County and finished at Fort Kanoa, now Chamberlain, a four-hour trip by car. Elements of the tale were made into legend in John Neihart's 1915 epic poem, The Song of Hugh Glass. It immortalized Glass and the rugged terrain he battled with its themes of endurance, isolation, retribution, and forgiveness. That story inspired a monument in rural Perkins County near the claimed site of the bear attack. Neihart, who traveled extensively throughout the West, helped install a time capsule there in 1923. Joseph Wexelman is a history professor at Wayne State College in Nebraska, a school that has a residence hall named after Neihart. Wexelman says he's intrigued by these stories of these people and the monument they've left behind. A lot of those questions were answered when we went up there in May. Um, And as they got answered, I got more and more involved in the story of Neihardt and Hugh Glass. That story came to life as a movie, The Revenant, in 2015. Wexelman says Neihardt left specific instructions on what to do with the time capsule. He wanted it opened on the 100th anniversary and left detailed requests, which have been followed to the letter. We did everything Neihardt wanted us to do. We started a fire with flint and steel, the mountain man way, at sunset. And as the fire burned, we recited portions of his poem, The Song of Hugh Glass, and then gave the mountain man yell. And we told ghost stories around the campfire after that. There is one important hang-up, though. They haven't opened the monument for a very good reason. Nyhart was a poet. He was not an engineer. And I don't think he left the time capsule where it's going to be easy to find. The further we go into it, the further it looks like he just buried the time capsule in the cement. It appears that opening the original century-old marker will destroy or badly damage it. But Wexelman says there's another mystery. Who actually owns the 1923 monument? The state of South Dakota does not feel it's theirs. Wayne State College does not feel it's theirs. I'm not a, a player here. The Neihardt family has the strongest uh, ownership claim to it. And they put in a request to move the monument to the Neihardt Center in Bancroft, Nebraska. The executive director of the center, Marianne Reynolds, explains the family's claim. We work very closely with the Neihardt Trust. And in John's papers establishing the trust, he said that any property that's found associated to him is the property of the trust. Right now, it's unclear when the time capsule will be opened. All of this raises questions for the residents of Lemon, a town 15 miles north of the monument. It hosts a festival each year, the Hugh Glass Rendezvous. They stage the period-appropriate event for a week, camping in tents, cooking over fires, and wearing the clothing of the era. Chad Abel is the treasurer of the Rendezvous Association. In heavy corduroy pants and long sleeves on a bright August day, he says this event keeps Glass's story and his pioneer spirit alive. To be part of that history, and all the stories and all of the things that have happened in 200 years, it's, it's quite amazing. When the state of South Dakota was not even thought of for another 66 years. A longtime organizer of the event is the owner of the local newspaper, the Dakota Herald, Lakita Shockley. She says the area has its own claim to the Hugh Glass story. It was just one of those things that, as a local resident, I felt was very unrecognized. It was such a big part of our local history. I mean, because this is right here in our backyard. Shockley plays one of the most crucial roles at the rendezvous. It comes during a family-friendly retelling of Glass's bear attack. There was also a lot of buffalo, just thousands and thousands of buffalo. There was also bears, grizzly bears, here at the time. 
And, <laughs> and we're still here. <laughs> she wears a bear costume to add to the drama of the moment. Shockley says it's an opportunity to put her home and one of the state's most isolated communities on the map. So, I mean, it, it does definitely, like say, bring a boost and brings a lot of attention to a very small little speck out here in the middle of nowhere. And of course, you know, when they go in town, we always encourage them to go visit the Grand River Museum and the Kokomo Art Gallery. Organizers say the rendezvous will continue, but Chalkley says if the monument is destroyed when the time capsule's opened, something will be missing. Down the road, we will see what happens. I'm hoping that we will have a capsule opening one of these days that we can celebrate and recognize. Until that day comes, the original monument stands on borrowed time in the Shade Hill Reservoir wilderness of Perkins County. It's waiting to be discovered by the last few adventurers willing to make a trek off the beaten path to find it. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen in Lemon. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you on the next in the moment. What is the American mythology? Do we all share those same foundational stories? Mike Card is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll talk about adversity, injustice, and how the stories of America impact today's political narrative. Yeah, we might have a bear story in there, too. We'll also explore more about Jessica Castleberry's use of federal funds and how the controversy might impact other legislators. It's all coming up on the next In the Moment. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.